Last week together, we considered the seventh commandment with a sermon about sexuality. And I have to admit that when it was over, I breathed a sigh of relief. Uh, I went home and I took a nap. Uh, My wife lovingly encouraged me to go see a movie by myself, which for like an uh, introvert, uh, cinephile is like just wonderful. Um, And on Monday morning, I woke up and Brentley asked me how I was feeling about the coming week. And I said, famous last words, uh, at least as it pertains to the sermon, it shouldn't be as tough as the last one. Uh, But the more that I thought about it, um, I realized that in fact, this morning we're talking about a topic that might be even more contested, controversial, and potentially convicting than sexuality, because this morning we're talking about money. Talking about money. The eighth commandment is you shall not steal. We're talking about stealing, but really what we're talking about is money, about how we acquire it, how we use it, how we think about it. And the Bible and Jesus have a lot to say about money. And really that makes sense because what is money? What actually is money? In the more kind of philosophical, conceptual sense, what does money represent? What does money mean? It's interesting to think about. I think money means at least three things. For one, money means trust. And when we earn and save and spend money, part of what we're saying is I put some level of trust in the institution that is backing this currency. I trust that what they say that it's worth today is what it will be worth tomorrow. And trust is why the U.S. dollar is still the most important currency in the world. And trust is why things like inflation make us so angry. The other side of that equation is that money also means authority. That when you use money to acquire something or to make something happen, it is a form of exerting your authority or exerting your power in the world. And authority is the reason why things like fraud make us so angry because when somebody uses money on false pretenses to make something happen that shouldn't happen, we get mad about that. We feel like we've been tricked. They're taking something from us. And thirdly, and of course, all three of these are are connected, they're interconnected, right? Money means value. Money is a representation and a store of value. Those little pieces of paper in your wallet, those numbers or those graphs flitting across the screen, they don't, they're not literally worth anything, but together we've generally agreed to trust each other and more importantly, to trust the authority that underwrites the value of that money to say this thing has some value. And so trust, authority, and value, I'm I'm sure that's too simplistic. One of the intimidating things about preaching a sermon about money in South Charlotte is that everyone in the room knows more about money than you do. I'm sure that's too simplistic, and you guys can uh, correct me, but I think that it's basically true. Money represents trust, authority, and value. And as soon as we start asking questions like, what do you trust in the most? Who is your ultimate authority? What do you value above all else? We should expect God's word to have something to say about that. And you know, in America, all of our cash says on it, in God we trust. But maybe what that actually means is, in these little green gods, I trust more than anything else. Now, as we consider this topic this morning, we need to try to hold on to two biblical truths at the same time, to hold two truths in balance. Remember, this is important to say in our day and age, two things can be true at the same time. And the Bible has two themes about money that simultaneously run through all that it teaches about money. The first is that having money, even having a lot of money, is not morally wrong. 
The Bible only, not only does not condemn, but in many cases commends wealth. I'm not going to go through all the verses here, but the Bible teaches variously that wealth is a good gift from God that is often a result, not always, but often a result of a person's hard work and wisdom, and that spending your money on enjoyable non-essentials is okay. It's good. God wants you to do that. And so truth one, having money, being wealthy is not inherently bad. It is not morally wrong. But truth true, the Bible also teaches that money how we get it, how we spend it, how we think about it, is one common context, and in fact, maybe the most common context, wherein human corruption expresses itself. Both of those things are true in the Bible at the same time. Wealth isn't wrong, but being wealthy creates opportunities for corruption and selfishness and self-righteousness and sin that are especially dangerous because they can be layered with a certain respectability. You can be sort of gilded with a sense of acumen and importance and self-protection that is hard for us to see past. And so, for instance, in the later parts of the Old Testament, when the prophets start bringing God's indictment against corrupt Israel, one of the most common symptoms that they cite is the neglect and the mistreatment of the poor. They don't usually say that something technically illegal has happened. Instead, they say that the economic situation in Israel represents deep-seated selfishness and self-righteous sin that is abhorrent to God. And I think that it is an important secondary teaching of Scripture that when financial systems develop to a place where wealthy people can engage in lucrative loopholing, that is when we can consistently tip the scales so that money flows more and more into our pockets and away from other people and other parts of our community, that that is an infraction of the Eighth Commandment. Right? God calls Christians to recognize and to fight against that sort of corruption in the communities that we live in. Now what's more, wealth is dangerous to individual hearts. Right? to be especially spiritually damaging because it reorients our heart's trust and value away from God. That's why Jesus says in the parable of the sower, for instance, that the deceitfulness of riches, and he uses that exact phrase, the deceitfulness of riches has the power to choke out the growth of the gospel in our lives. Or in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul writes, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Maybe that's actually the best way to describe this distinction that we're talking about. It's not, and this, that verse is often misquoted, right? It is not money is the root of all evil. Right? It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is a way that evil and idolatry manifests itself in many different ways in our lives. And so as we go this morning, try to hold those two truths in proper balance. The Bible teaches that wealth is not wrong, that having a lot of money does not mean that you have done something bad, and that the wealthy are especially susceptible to breaking the Eighth Commandment in ways that we might not want to acknowledge and that we might never get caught for until we get caught for it. Now, last week we used the language of spectrum 
of a spectrum, and I think that that's helpful here again this morning. The Eighth Commandment is most explicitly forbidding the unlawful stealing of something that belongs to someone else. And so many of us will say, well, I haven't broken the Eighth Commandment, right? But remember, it's also talking about a spectrum of the litany of other sins that involve tricking, defrauding, loopholing, exploiting, and outmaneuvering people and systems in ways that might not technically be illegal, but are unjust and harmful and don't tend towards flourishing and love. God calls us to the highest standard of integrity with our financial affairs and our participation in worldly commerce for his glory and for our good. And we could talk about the many particulars of the Eighth Commandment and the sins along that spectrum of stealing for the next hour and still not come close to covering everything. And so instead, actually, spoiler alert, uh, next year, probably in January, we're going to do a whole sermon series on money and ge- generosity and stewardship. Okay, and so this morning, to sort of tee that up in a way, what I want to do with the rest of our time is to just look at one story of Jesus and suggest three principles that it teaches us for our flourishing. One story about Jesus and three principles, or we might say three patterns to move toward integrity and freedom and flourishing when it comes to money. And the story is that of the rich young ruler. And the three principles are dominion, value, and mercy. Dominion, value, and mercy. Now, this story shows up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It shows up in three different Gospels. And usually when Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include the same story, you can be sure that they thought this is important. Something significant happened here, and they all chose to record it in their biographies of the life of Jesus. And what I have done in your bulletin, because each of those passages brings out little details and differences of perspective that are helpful, I've sort of done a compilation or a mashup of those three stories. And so I included all three references there if you want to look at them on your own. This is sort of a combination or an overlay of the three. Let me read this for us. As Jesus was about to set out on a journey, a young man, a ruler, ran up, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. No one is good except God alone. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he asked. Jesus answered, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. He said, teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you still lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come, follow me. Hearing this, the young ruler was dismayed, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were astonished and asked, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. This is God's word. The first principle, dominion, or we could call this the biblical pattern of rulership. Okay? The man in this story is identified as a ruler 
And we don't know exactly what that means. The original word is archon, and it could mean like a, a lord or a local government official or a synagogue leader, or it might just mean an influential person in the community. Maybe he was just an influencer. Right? <laughs> Whatever it means, we know this man had authority and influence in the place that he lived and that he was wealthy. And I think Jesus responds to him in the way that he does in part because he is a rich ruler. From the very beginning of the Bible, the Bible consistently teaches that there is a specific pattern of rulership that applies to all human beings. It applies to you and me. If you go all the way back to Genesis 1, right after God makes the first humans, he gives them their job description, their work in the world. And theologians call this the cultural mandate, and it still applies to all human beings today. It's in Genesis 1.27, where it says, God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God basically tells Adam and Eve and us that humans are meant to do two things in the world, that we are meant to build families and communities that fill the world and that we are meant to rule over the earth, that we're meant to rule, we're meant to have dominion. And that word dominion means to be a ruler, to rule. And it might ring problematic in some of our ears because we live in a time and in a culture that distrusts and dislikes dominion and authority. And I would say, by the way, not without good reason. We shouldn't be quick to dismiss people who say that authority across human history and in my life has been used to harm and exploit people. Right? But the solution isn't to throw out the idea of authority altogether. Right? Authority isn't bad. Bad authority is bad. Right? Rulers are not bad. Bad rulers are bad. Instead, what we have to do is go back and properly define dominion as God intended. Before God gives people this role in the world, he shows us what good dominion looks like. People are made to have dominion because they are made in the image of God. Humans, all human beings, are God's vice regents. They're his vice rulers little local represent, representatives of the ruler who will ultimately help be held accountable to him for how they ruled in the various spheres that he gave them authority. And that means two things. Okay, first of all, it means that everything that you have, your life, your health, your brain, your work ethic, your authority, your wealth, everything that you have is a gift from God that ultimately belongs to him. He has given it to you, and you are his steward of it. And second, it means that the fullest expression of your divine imagehood is to use whatever authority and influence and resource God has given you to bless other people. When God made humans in his image, what had he just finished doing? He had just finished pouring his life and his love and his beauty and his blessing into the whole universe to fill it with goodness. He invested himself and his resources to fill the world with flourishing. And as rulers made in his image, you and I are called to do the same thing on a local level. So 
come back to the rich young ruler. Here is a person who has some authority, some dominion in his community and enough resources to be described as rich. In other words, he's a lot like most of the people in this room. And Jesus is inviting him to live into the fullest image bearing, the fullest flourishing by pouring out his wealth into the community around him, especially to the poor. This is God's pattern of rulership. This is his definition of dominion. Do you have some authority? Are you a leader, a ruler, a boss in some capacity? God made you to use that authority to bless others and to seek their flourishing. And if you have wealth, one of the main ways that you're supposed to do that is to redistribute your wealth to other people and especially to those in need. Christians should spend less time complaining about the government's redistribution of wealth and more time saying, hold my beer, watch this, watch what I'm about to do. Second principle, value. We call this one the reorientation of worth. At this point, let's address the toughest thing that Jesus says in this passage. Remember, the man says to Jesus, teacher, I have kept all these commandments from my youth. And then it says, looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you still lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. Now, I hope that you are not so comfortable with the real Jesus that that statement doesn't upset you. I hope that we are not so familiar with him that we're not bothered by what he does here, okay? I mean, if you're doing ministry, right, and a, and a young, wealthy, influential person comes up and throws themselves at your feet and says, what do I have to do to go to heaven? That's really, that is like best case scenario, okay? That, that, it never happens, you know? I'm sure the disciples were watching this and they were like, okay, finally an easy one, okay? Go ahead, Mark, put this one down in the books and let's move on, Jesus. And then Jesus proceeds to royally mess up this interaction, right? Or does he? Now, people have come up with different theories about what's going on here, okay? And one theory is that maybe Jesus really is giving a universal command to all Christians. If you want true life, sell most, if not all, of your stuff and give your money away to the poor and follow me. You shouldn't be too quick to dismiss that interpretation, right? There are lots of Christians throughout history who have taken vows of poverty based on the words of Jesus here. But I don't think it's right to call it a universal command. Another theory is that Jesus is giving a specific order to this one person who is especially idolatrous of money, right? And, and that one is more palatable to us because it means that we can sort of sidestep what Jesus says here, right? This guy had a serious money problem, right? <laughs> and I think that the answer is probably somewhere in between, right? It does seem like Jesus is giving a special prescription to someone who loves his wealth and his possessions too much and who is a bit self-righteous to boot. And is it also possible that this diagnosis is true of more people than just this one man? Is it possible 
that in this story, Jesus is talking to me? And is it possible that you need the same healing, freeing prescription that the rich young ruler needed? The order of Jesus' response to this man is important. Did you notice it? Okay, it says first that he looked at him. And when Jesus looks at someone, he really looks at them. He sees them entirely. And then it says that he loved him. And from that place of knowing and loving, Jesus speaks. And he speaks something difficult. And the question is, if Jesus, who knows you completely, and who loves you extravagantly, looked you in the eye and said to you, sell everything and follow me, would you do it? I'm not sure that I would. Throughout this story, I think what Jesus is saying to this man is, you came to the right person, and you asked the right question, But you need to understand that my answer is not one part of a balanced religious diet. And it is not one stock in a diversified portfolio. It is a complete upending of the world's system of value. It is a tectonic reorientation of your understanding of worth because nothing less than that will save you. Jesus knows, and deep down you and I know, that if you look to money and the things that money can buy for security, satisfaction, and significance, you'll only find fleeting fool's gold imitations of those things. And in fact, the worst thing that can happen to a wealthy person is that you go through your entire life feeling moderately pleased with the comfort and the safety and the entertainment and the status that money gives only to realize in the end that you never tasted the true, the sublime, the eternal I had breakfast this week with a brother in Christ who goes to this church and he wisely said, money is dangerous. I'm scared of what wealth promises. I said, how convenient, I'm preaching on that this Sunday. Could you you expand on that a little bit? Tell me more. (laughs) I'm gonna use you in the sermon. I asked his permission. He said, I'm scared that I would start to believe in it, to believe that it can really make me happy and significant. That's good. In this passage, Jesus isn't calling us to something lesser, something cheaper. He's calling us to something more, something of infinitely greater worth. The true lasting security and satisfaction and significance that you were made for is only found in Jesus, in the relationships and the adventure that he brings you into. Are you willing to sell out to follow him? Now, that's easy for me to say. And it is hard for me to believe, much less to do. It's easy for me to say, sell out for Jesus. Nothing is more valuable than him. But when I'm feeling anxious or worried or exposed, how often do I open up my banking app to check that safety net, to balance the budget? How often do I find my mouse drifting towards like the retirement account on my browser. Am I gonna be okay? When I'm feeling dissatisfied and sad, how often, you can ask my family about this one, how often do I start to think, can we afford another trip to Disney World? (laughs) 
Can we afford that vacation that we just saw our friends taking on Instagram? And when I feel insignificant, when I feel small, how often do I play out in my imagine the other career paths I could have taken with higher salaries? It's easy to say, it's hard to believe which is exactly why Jesus says in, these, in this passage how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, to really apprehend and to inhabit the way of Jesus. But then he says, by human effort, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. How do you go from lip service to this idea to true transformation? only by the transformative power of the gospel. Third principle, and to call this one a principle is really too reductive, but third, mercy, grace. Second Corinthians chapter eight, verse nine, and this is a wonderful, wonderful verse to memorize. Second Corinthians eight, verse nine, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. You know the grace of Jesus. He was infinitely rich and yet for your sake he became poor so that through his poverty you might become infinitely rich. When you experience the grace of Jesus, his intentional act of self-impoverishment because of love, through his life and through his death, in order to make you rich, that sort of mercy, that sort of love has the power to really transform us, including to transform the way that we think about money. I think about our three words this morning, dominion, value, mercy. Jesus, the creator king of the universe, infinite in authority and dominion and power and rule, intentionally divested himself of his dominion to come and be your servant, to wash feet, to be a gentle and lowly savior. He poured out his resources to make you alive and accepted by God so that you could flourish forever. Jesus, the Son of God, infinitely valued by the Father from all eternity, experiencing the Father's infinite value from all eternity, came to earth as a human being to endure poverty and humiliation, to be devalued on the cross, including devalued by me. It's my mocking voice crying out among the scoffers, crucify him, I value him so little and yet he valued me greatly. He endured the unfathomable gulf between what he deserved and what he received in order to bridge the gulf between what I deserve and what I receive in and through him. He took judgment so that we could have mercy. He became poor so that we through him could become rich. I mean, did you know that your entire worldly net worth is less than a penny that you'll pick up from the sidewalk in the kingdom of heaven? The streets there are paved with gold. You are a son, you are a daughter of king. Or we could think about the three common objections that we raise to not give money to the poor. 
Right? What are the things that we say? Well, this is mine. I've worked hard for this. Right? Or they don't deserve it. They're not working. Right? Or if I give, the, and this is probably the most common one, if I give it to them, they're just going to squander it. They're just going to misuse it. Imagine if Jesus had said those things. Right? This is my righteousness, my life, my pleasure of God. I earned it. This is my blood. They don't deserve it. What have they done to deserve it? And if I give it to them, of course they're going to misuse it. They're going to continue to be the messy, broken people that they were before I gave it to them. <laughs> he didn't say any of those things. It's my delight to give you my very life to bring you into infinite riches. When this reality, when the gospel captivates you, one of the effects is that it begins to work in your heart to unravel the mess of money idolatry that we've been entangled in. Because you received immense mercy, you start to want to extend mercy, including financial mercy, to those in need. And because the most valuable person who ever lived was devalued to claim you as his treasure, the way you think about value starts to reorient away from your bank account and towards the kingdom, towards Jesus. And by the way, one of the things that the Bible teaches and one of the things that Christians have found to be consistently true across history is that one of the best ways to get freedom from money addiction, money idolatry, is to give it away until it feels uncomfortable. Right? And, and this one's probably harder for people who live in Charlotte, to give it away without regard for return on investment. Because the rich ruler of the universe exerted his dominion and his authority to bless us and to bring us into flourishing, we start to get excited about doing the same thing locally. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your love for rich young rulers who are self-righteous. We thank you that you came to give us challenging words about wealth, but then to do everything necessary to make our reconciliation and our transformation possible. We pray that you would hear us speaking these same challenging words that you spoke to the rich young ruler to us, but not apart from your promise that with God all things are possible and by the gospel real transformation happens. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen. Now, there's a story of another man in the Bible. It's kind of a correlating story with the rich young ruler story. It's a story of a wee little man. A wee little man was he, Zacchaeus, right? There was a tax collector named Zacchaeus who had great wealth, and he had run the experiment, can money make me happy? Can it make me significant? Can it make me secure? And he had found loneliness and desperation, and he became so desperate that when he heard about this guy named Jesus coming, he was willing to do something silly. He was to climb up a tree just to lay eyes on him. I just want to see him. And Jesus walked by that tree and he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming over to your house today. When was the last time that Zacchaeus had had a house guest that he was actually excited about? And in this meal this morning, just like Jesus with Zacchaeus, Jesus is saying to us, I'm coming up into your proverbial house. 
I'm coming into your home and we are going to have a meal together. And Jesus had that meal with Zacchaeus before he had done anything practically to fix the money problems that he had had in his past. But after that meal, he said, half of what I have, I give it away to the poor and anything that I've defrauded, I pay it back fourfold, right? That's the order, right? Jesus loving him and forgiving him and through a meal of forgiveness, through a meal of love and relationship, Zacchaeus begins to be changed. And that's what's happening here this morning. As we partake of this meal by the power of his Holy Spirit, Jesus really is present with us and he uses these elements to transform us. These are tangible, tasteable pieces of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after the meal, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood My blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. He instituted this meal for us, his church, his brothers and sisters, to remind us of the gospel and apply it to our hearts. Let me just remind you that this is a meal for Christians. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, if you don't identify as a Christian, we're really glad that you're here. We hope that you will keep coming. And this meal has benefits to you as you observe it and think about it. But the Bible warns that if you partake of this meal, not only is it not beneficial to you, it might actually be harmful to you. And so the challenge for you is to have the integrity to not partake of this meal. And you can find some prayers on the back of your bulletin to help you think about what it would look like to put your faith in Jesus and what's going on in this meal. But for the rest of us, those of us who are believers, even if you struggle with weak and wavering faith, you need assurance, you have doubts, this meal is a meal for our assurance, for our encouragement, for our restoration. And so come boldly to the table claiming the mercy of Jesus for all your sins and his grace to bless you and transform you. I'll remind you that uh, as you exit your section, go out to your right and come down and receive and then come back to the left of your section there's uh, two, two rings of grape juice fence on the outside of the cup tray, and then the inner rings are wine. And there's also a gluten-free option in the little pre-packaged cups. Let me pray for us, and then as you're ready, you can come forward to partake. Jesus, we thank you for uh, this, this tangible gift of communion with you. We thank you that you, in your earthly ministry, you loved to go into the homes of sinners and eat with them, and that you still are in the business of doing that today, that you are intimate with us, that you love to call us your brothers and sisters, and even when we're in the midst of sin, you love to share a meal with us, and this meal is the gospel. We thank you that on the cross, you did everything necessary to forgive us of sin and make us righteous with God, and that we're adopted children, members of the family, citizens of the kingdom. And I pray that as we partake of this bread and this cup, that you would set these elements aside from their normal use to their sacred use, that you would encourage and strengthen us spiritually. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.